Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. Studio of WHUP LP Hillsboro. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo. Over the next hour, I'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on the show, Blank Thy Neighbor, journalist, photographer, artist, Lindsay Adario is with us. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I'm the founder of the Modern School of Film. With you every week, live on whupfm.org and evergreen. Murmurradio.com, M-U-R, M-U-R, radio.com. Download, subscribe, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. We have social handles at msf murmur twitter instagram got a lot going on (laughs) you catching the drift are you picking up what i'm putting down (laughs) we have a website i said that we have a email murmurradio at gmail.com if you email me at murmurradio gmail.com i will read it personally i read them all very personally some impersonally no i read them all with a, with a very open mind and heart. If you have a topic you'd like me to look at and investigate on the show, I will match the topic with a guest. Mention the topic. I'll put a, I'll put a guest to it. I'll put a guest on the case, and I will mention that it was your idea, because that's how I roll. <laughs> I'm a generous man. MurmurRadio.com. Welcome to Murmur. It is. A pleasure to be back with you. Lindsay Adario is with us. Lindsay is sort of a super cool human being. She is a photographer, journalist, artist, in all those orders at once, if that's possible. She, um, her photos are legion, a growing legion. She won a Pulitzer Prize in 2009. She was part of the New York Times team on international reporting for their work uh, covering the Taliban and other elements of the the war in Afghanistan since 2008. So 2008, she's been back and forth. 2009, she won a Pulitzer. 2010, she won a MacArthur Genius Award. So Lindsay's a slacker, <laughs> basically. Uh, to, further proof of that is she's been kidnapped twice. She was kidnapped once in 2004 in Iraq near Fallujah. Uh, kidnapped again in 2011, this time in Libya. She was am- her, her team, um, two other journalists, her and a driver, were ambushed by the Taliban in Afghanistan. She was uh, held captive for a week and released. Sh- that captivity and those events led her to write a book called It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love in War. Really fascinating book, first-person account. And love is where we want to start today. A slice of love, the slice of love that creators know, and I'm not speaking about professional creators, I mean people who create, uh, big C, I almost said big big K, K K-R-E-A-T-E, create, C-R-E-A-T-E, the aspect of love that comes in and out of it, 
and in 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 the way of do you have to love something? Do you have to love the thing you're creating? As you're creating something, do you have to love it? Do I have to love this show? Do I, is it the show I love or is it doing it I love? Is it me I love? Probably not the last one, but is <laughs> where does love what does love have to do with it? Where does love factor in? Is love necessary for creation? I'm going to talk to Lindsay about that. Walking the high wire of journalism and, and art. I'm going to ask her if she's an artist, but I think she's an artist. Walking that high wire, the physical peril, the emotional, the personal peril, the relationship strain. She's married with a child. And all, all, of, all of that has love, I mean, in and of itself. So is love a component of creating and pursuing there's also a part of love that is a sort of uh, reaction to the creation, distance. Do you have to love something to create a distance from it? Is distancing yourself from your art, tiptoeing backwards, love-based, whether it's the filmmaker who finally decides, I'm ready to show it, it's never that simple, but whether it's the painter that decides I'm ready to hang this on a wall, the author that decides I'm done, with the book, I'm going to submit it to a publisher or have my friends read it. Is the distancing love? Is that an act of love? Is that abandonment? Love is love. What what is what is the necess? Where how much of love is necessary and if at all in play? The the architecture of love and letting go from poetry to music, setting something free that you love. You know, it's a different boomerang, if you will. If you love something, set it free. If you love someone, set them free. You know, the work of art that comes out of you, the piece of creation that emerges out of your authorship, the implication of if you love something, set it free, is that was it in a prison? <laughs> was it in a prison? You know, when your children are ready to go off to school or to university or to war, letting go requires, I think as I say it in midair, it does sound like it requires a love. But how can that reconcile itself? How can how can letting go of something equate to a loving act, a loving gesture? I'm always interested, you know, there's some really fascinating and, and maybe uh, time-tested metaphors of creation, like giving birth. I obviously cannot give birth, so I wonder you know, the, the mental metaphysics of the birthing process. And I, it's a verb I use a lot with, with guests on this show, midwifing. Midwifing, you know, I, maybe I, I'm not giving birth to a work, but I'm midwifing. I don't want to be too literal here, but the midwifing process, the coaxing process. And, and there, there's another component. Can you help another person birth a, a, a piece of art? And do you have to love someone else's art or to engage in that process? Do you have to love that person you're helping to engage in that process? Does love obscure or does it reveal? We're quick to say love is blind domestically, <laughs> socially, love is blind. And I, and I would say wholeheartedly love is blind in terms of art, whether it's cutting a scene out of a film or a script or reducing a poem down to fewer stanzas, what we leave behind. I believe there's a Hemingway quote that once you've written something, cut out all your favorite stuff and then you're done. And I think he's responding to the irrational attachments that we have to the work we create or, or the things we create. We think everything that we create is, is good. So Hemingway saying, if you think it's good, it's not good, get rid of it, and then you'll have something of value. Lindsay, I, I can't, there's so many intellectual motivations I can I could inject into her work. I'd rather ask her, and, and thankfully she'll be on the show with us today. Uh, but there has to be, you know, we're, we're, we're loath to say, I love my job, because it sounds like a misplaced... Uh, target of love. I'm I'm not afraid. I I think in my work and in my business, you have to love it because if you don't love it, there's no reason to do it. it it's it's that kind of road I'm on or, or 
someone would be on in my place in addition. So I think love is a sort of adhesive. It's like having a, you know, a something in, to, at your back, a form of protection. It's, it's the bottom line. It's the last link, love. But does it get in the way? Does it obscure? One thing I don't love, friends, <laughs> I don't love daylight savings time. <laughs> That's something I want to talk to Lindsay about. I wonder, as a photographer, what she thinks of it. I don't love it. And if you, I, there's so many reasons I read why most, I think, most all of Arizona and all of Hawaii on, on the, in the 50 United States do not observe daylight savings time. I think that's cool. Can we all get with the program? The rest of the 48, <laughs> you know, there's so many reasons, whether it's the kids waiting at the school bus stop, whether it's energy-based, whether it's farm-based. I, I, email murmurradio at gmail.com. Let me know. What, can we settle this argument? And if I get enough emails, I'll let you know. I don't like daylight savings time. It just sort of happened recently. I want to talk to... Um, Lindsay about it because how does it affect the photographer? <laughs> Today on Murmur, Lindsay Adario, glad to have you here. Lindsay's coming now. This. that suits me. I had lots of time to learn how to shoot with my left. When you have to shoot, shoot. Don't talk.
You know, it's funny, when people say they major in international relations, I always wondered what that meant. Now I know, because today's guest did that and redefined it. And this all began with one of my favorite words, curiosity. We are honored to have with us uh, the esteemed, renowned uh, journalist, photojournalist, Sahafia, Ms. Lindsay Adario. Hey, Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Hi. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. No problem. Well, happy daylight savings. I hate daylight savings. I know. As a photographer, it do you hate daylight savings? Me. Or do you do you Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Right. Nightmare. Right. <laughs> yeah. One theory I want to get out of the way with you. I know you're Italian as am I, but you also said your family didn't hold grudges. I don't believe that. You must not be Sicilian because us Sicilians know how to hold a grudge. Are you really Italian? So my, all of my grandparents are Italian, yes. So my lineage is 100%. My blood is. But of course, I was born in America. I was born in Connecticut. And the quote for me was about my grandmother. That's, uh, she's 104. Uh. And she's, still lucid and, and still cooking and still moving around. And everyone asks her what her secret is to her longevity. And her answer is often that she doesn't hold grudges. That's amazing. I think there's something in that. And, and I was being glib because I'm convinced The Godfather is a documentary. But amen to your, your grandmother living this amazing long life. That's incredible. You know, you meet people... <laughs> Uh, from every culture, from every discipline, the good, the bad, the, the gray. Uh, what about that? You know, I, I always wonder, love your enemy, you know, that, that, that trope. Is that true or is it pity your enemy? W what word would you use for those things that, that nail you to the wall, whether it's emotionally, physically, spiritually? Is it, is it about letting go and not holding grudges? Look, I mean, I think it, it, we're faced with adversity and the so-called enemy all the time. And I think the, the key is how do you navigate that and how do you not let it hold you back? I mean, for me, I um, am in a profession that is primarily populated by men. And I um, have spent pretty much um, the last 17 years covering war. And I, you know, I see some pretty horrific things. But the one thing I also see is the fact that the people I photograph who are the ones born into these horrible situations are still smiling and still optimistic about the future. And so for me, I always think, I always try to put things in perspective and I always think, well, you know, how could I ever get down about something or how could I ever uh, let anything hold me back? Because I was born into such a life of relative privilege. And so I think it's important to take things in stride, to keep moving forward, to identify a goal or whatever it is one wants to achieve, whether it's that day or in the long term, and just go for it. Getting this opportunity to uh, speak with you, I think of two parts of it, you know, the emotional side and the aesthetic side. What is more interesting to talk about as, as a photographer, a journalist, uh, and a human being? Do you find you're not asked as much about the technical side of your work? Or do you feel like you're asked too much about the technical side? I rarely get asked about the technical side. I think I I get emails from sort of young students or from random people who just find my email and send me an email and say, hi, what lens do you use and why? Or, hi, how do I become, you know, how do I have your life? Or, you know, very <laughs> odd sort of, you know, let me circumvent like the entire process of learning and just like, tell me how to do it. So I think, you know, for me, it's more about um, the questions I get are, are always the same. Have you ever been in a dangerous situation? Did you ever think you were going to die? Why would you go back? Why do you do this for a living? You must make a lot of money. Um, what's it like being a woman? They're very sort of they're, they're questions that I get all right. the time. I'm, I'm, so, I'm not laughing at you being uh -huh. a woman. I just find that it's, it's kind of there's so many implications of that question from the very basic to the extravagant. That's why it just sounded funny. All as you said the it. time. I mean, yeah. And I and I sort of am like, well, I don't know what it's like to be a man. So I can only tell you from my experience of being a woman. Right, <laughs> yeah. right, right. So, yeah. right. Let me throw a few different ideas at you. And 
and and you know hopefully we can tread some new ground. I, I don't like to t- talk about things that are litigated already, but you are fascinating, and not to speak as if you're not here. But uh, yeah, here's a couple of thoughts to take Thank or leave. You, you know, uh, an inspirational. Not fascinating wasn't the right word. You're you're in, you are inspiring. Uh, present tense, present tense. Um, (laughs) You know, I was thinking a little bit about film and photography, uh, and I was thinking about some really almost creaky, cliche filmmaker quotes, and I wanted to throw them at you. And one is a Godard quote, that you have to love something to film it. What do you make of that? Well, it's interesting, because I was listening, I was actually telling a story recently and saying that, you know, I fall in love with my subject almost every time I shoot something. And, you know, no matter who it is or what it is, I, I find myself becoming completely um, enveloped in, in that person and, and sort of in looking at them and staring at them and looking at the light and the way the light falls and watching the way a person moves and thinks and understanding, trying to anticipate whoever I'm ph- photographing trying to anticipate sort of their emotions or their next move, I sort of fall in love with them. And so I do kind of agree with that quote, even in these, even in really difficult situations, I become very attached to the people I photograph. Mm. And I believe you have to, because, you know, we spend an extraordinary amount of time documenting incredibly intimate uh, moments of complete strangers. And so I think you have to create a connection. Martin Scorsese once said, um, you have to love something enough to kill it. And I was thinking that about that with you for two reasons. One, you know, editorially on your photos. I'm sure the photos that you, you don't put into the public consciousness are arguably, if not more beautiful. But it, it, So I guess that's part one. And also I was thinking on a funny level, not so funny level, you've used your lens to physically defend yourself, which... Um, <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> next time, next time I go into B, next, next time I go into B and H photo video, I'll ask where uh, the the big lens, the sharper lenses are, and I don't mean sharpness. But but what what about that that you know just to throw that meta- bad metaphor at you or interesting metaphor? Where is there violence in your approach? And we can also look at this in terms of philosophical ideas about taking someone's photo. Is there any kind of violence? And again, this word is 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 leadened in your world because you've seen real violence. But sure. where do you sure. take? Where do you take away? What are you taking away that you wish you ha- weren't taking away? So the word violence sort of gives me pause because I don't, I don't see myself as that kind of person at all. Like I, you know, for me, I'm constantly trying to um, to get on the same level as my subjects and be respectful and empathetic. And so I'm really approaching sort of slowly and methodically and with you know, with their permission. And I think the thing that is that you said that was interesting to me is to love it uh, enough that to let it go so that if my editor decides to not use a photo or if a story gets killed, it's okay. I mean, I'm never really okay with that because obviously I photograph subjects and stories that I believe need to be out there. And so if someone makes a decision on my behalf or if someone, one of my editors decides they can't put an image out there, I get very upset because I feel like, you know, we, we curate our own world. And so everyone should have access to all the information and decide what they want to take away from those images. And so when people start censoring those images before they even get out to the public, it becomes, I have a big problem with that because I Mm. think that, we would be different people if we had access to the things that I see uncensored. Um, Because I've changed a lot as a person since I started doing this job because I've witnessed so much. Mm. When we talk about figures of speech, oddly enough, you know, you have to kill something to love it or, you know, we can mix and match. Yeah. And is there a canister for all these awful expressions when you've already seen them? You know, when you've seen death, when you've seen, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit later about bullets. I mean, you've literally seen bullets. Going by really fast. Yes. <laughs> I don't see them. Well, hearing a bullet. the whoosh of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. You know, you watch Saving Private Ryan and you hear the whoosh and you think, oh, what extraordinary sound design. You, you've lived that. It, it, being through what you've been through, is, is life 
is 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 fabrication now completely anticlimactic for you or do you find a place for it in, in a nourishing place for it nonetheless no of course i find a place for it i mean i think what was fascinating to me as sort of a young photographer when i first started covering war is that i thought wow hollywood really got it right like this is exactly <laughs> like watching a movie you know so that was like what i remember being like ambushed for my for the first time by iraqi insurgents outside of fallujah we, and we, we all remember our first were... time Lindsay, with that i mean i <laughs> was, we we all remember that i mean come on you this is so I mean, cliche I, I sorry sorry back of like sorry. an open back truck a completely unarmored with i don't know how many marines like well more than a dozen and we um the insurgents who were like i don't know maybe 500 meters away from us uh fired a rocket right above us and then just all armageddon began and like there was all hell broke loose and the insurgents were shooting rockets and and the americans were shooting back and then they called in airstrikes and we were taking cover and i thought to myself i was so terrified and paralyzed with fear um for the first like 10 minutes of this entire scenario that i forgot to take pictures and then how dare you once i finally i know well once i finally got a position where i realized okay i can probably live if i stay below this line and i just you know stay flat on my stomach and then i started taking pictures and i remember pausing and thinking this is exactly like a movie Wow. And then thinking, this is the most ridiculous thing. Like, how did the, how did Hollywood understand how exactly to do it without being hurt? Oh, you know. But I think no, I don't dismiss that because I yeah. think it's it's important for people. You know, the whole goal of Hollywood obviously is to bring a scene or a situation to people and to let people feel like they're living that moment. And they've obviously, you know, they've done it right in that context. We had David Finkel on the show, and David a journalist, actually another genius recipient. Yeah. Um, and we talked a little bit about this. And he said, you know, when he watches a work of fiction, a war fiction, it doesn't phase him, actually, in any way. But it's when he watches a documentary like a Restrepo or, you know, the, the, and you've been embedded. You, uh, Lindsay, yeah. has been embedded. Uh, what about that? Is fiction... You know, is there safety and is there is there does your pulse race within a fictional film as much? I mean, look, I when I'm not working, I try to watch like love stories. I mean, the <laughs> last thing I want to watch is war. <laughs> yes, like, so I really am. I I go for all Un- under of, the Tuscan you know, sun. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, right. I I don't really watch violent movies when I'm when I'm not working, and so. It's, you know, and I, and I certainly, unless it's a documentary, I probably, I don't watch many war movies. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't dismiss it because I think, you know, for me, watching it is interesting. And I, I like watching it as a spectator without worrying for my life, you know, without worrying about taking cover and whether I'm going to live. So it's sort of interesting to watch um, things pan out on a big screen. Um, and I also feel like it brings me back memories that I don't necessarily want to revisit, but it mm. certainly does dredge up a lot. You know, I want to look at this a slightly different way, speaking with Lindsay Adario. Um, you met your husband, Paul, while he was a correspondent, a foreign correspondent in Turkey, and correct any of this uh, if I'm off on my facts. Sure. And I was thinking, you know, I, I recently re- rewatched the film, uh, if we can obsess in film a little bit more, The Year of Living Dangerously, the Peter Weir film, mm-hmm. uh, Mel Gibson, mm-hmm. Linda Hunt, who, uh, as Billy Kwan, the photographer, for incredible film sent during the overthrow of Sukarno. A, have you seen that film? Um, and B, you know, I want to talk a little bit about films about photographers because there is a sort of subcategory of war films. Salvador, the Oliver Stone film, is another film. Mm-hmm. Richard Boyle, the real photographer. Have you seen those films? And what about those films as a kind of documentary, non-documentary of your experience. Okay, so I'm embarrassed to say that in my adult life, I haven't seen those films. I'm sure I saw them in my teens when I first started getting interested in photography, but I saw The Killing Field, Uh, um, which made a huge impact on me. Um, And then I later worked alongside Dick Cron before um, when I was working in New York City in the 90s. So that was fascinating, of course, to see sort of the the protagonist of that movie and then see him in New York City after, you know, he escaped. But I think, um, 
you know, for me, those movies, I, it's hard for me to speak about because I haven't seen them and I know they're classics and it's embarrassing sure. to me that I haven't no, even no, seen don't, them. Don't, 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 don't be don't be embarrassed, and I'm, I'm. This isn't a cinema studies class. I, I only throw them up for your, your, you know, the homework of it all. And maybe this is a date night sure. thing, you know, because I think the Year of Living Dangerously yeah. is a fascinating. I only, you know, let me rephrase the question. Then, you know, th- there's something, and I, I think within the photographic mm-hmm. arts, the photographer she or he could be looked it's almost a there's almost something banal which makes it genius and maligned how's that for a, a lead-in to you know do you feel the overall zeitgeist of being a photographer do you like being forgotten because i've heard you say this about your photos as well is it, when you're not present you know with, with the, the lack of your or the, when the subject doesn't know you're there there's something kind of enriching and i also I, you said i can feel it in every part of my body which i thought was a fascinating piece of poetry is the photographer's job to be present or absent i guess oh, the misdirection is the, is a photography like a referee in a basketball game when you don't notice they're there they're doing a great job how do you how do you parse this how do you separate i think it's i think look i think it's impossible to walk into someone's life and to be invisible look everyone's body language changes they're aware of your presence they're aware of the camera that said i think my tactic has always been to stay long enough so that they finally relax and to just hang out, drink tea, talk, and make them feel comfortable until I can finally see a candid moment. And so I think a photographer's job is both, is to be present enough so that the subject feels comfortable, that they ultimately kind of forget you're there with a camera. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of a two-prong. And then I also think it really depends on the story. You know, it depends on what kind of, I. you know, for me, I cover very sensitive, very intimate stories, often women's stories. Um, and I, I think those are the kinds of stories where obviously it takes a lot to get access to. And then I spend an extraordinary amount of time working that story. Um, so I, I try to become invisible, but that takes like, you know, weeks, if not months. Um, so it really just depends. Mm. Does the subject become a kind of invisible editor to your photo in the sense of, you know, I'm thinking of documentarians who may leave out a scene because it exposes the subject of the film in in a way they may not want. How much of that in reality does go into, let's say, an editorial process? Let's leave the editor out of it. Let's just say you alone with, with your proofs. How much of it is, huh? They they don't want. I'm not. I'm sure they won't like this photo. Or do you have to get in kind of a neutral editorial space to do it to do your work justice? And is that possible? Well, I it's it's very it's almost impossible because you know I think there's some ground rules that have to be set. I think um, so. I think um, ground rules. It, yeah, I think there's some ground rules that have to be set in the sense that. You know, it's it's a very difficult decision for a photographer or for any person who does long form documentary because obviously you want the truest story and you want to show those moments that shouldn't be told because they will compromise the subject. But on the same token, sometimes the subject gives you access to something with the understanding that that is not part of the story and you won't print it. Mm-hmm. So it's a very difficult thing. You know, for example, right now. Um, for the last year, I've been working on a Finding Home series uh, for Time magazine where we've been following three Syrian refugee families over the course of a year. And all of the women were pregnant when we first met them, and their children are, have all turned one um, in the last like few weeks. So, in fact, one of the birthdays is today. And, um, and so there have been a lot of ethical choices we've had to make about that story because we often were privy to information or situations that might compromise their, their asylum status Mm -hmm. or where Mm -hmm. they get asylum. And so, you know, they, they revealed over time, of course, when you spend eight months, nine months, a year with a subject, they start to open up to you on a level that, you know, you wouldn't have in the beginning. And so, but they did that with the understanding that there are certain things that we wouldn't publish. And so that's very difficult because 
can you, you know, you don't ever want to jeopardize your trust with a subject because that's all you have is your integrity as a journalist. So it's, it's, you know, you have to sort of have those discussions with the subject as you go along. Have you ever been asked to give up a source? And is that a, so, you know, we're saying subject because we're looking at as the poetry of the form, the silhouette, the act of creation as you are a creator. But on the journal, journalism taketh away, you know, it's like two sides of it being a journal, journalist. Do, do you, has anyone ever said we need your source on this? No, they've never asked me for a source. What, what I've been asked for, um, the only time I've ever agreed, actually on two occasions have I been asked to show my photographs to someone before they were published. Mm. And that is an absolute no. I mean, that is, you know, something that um, I guess it's equivalent. It's not equivalent to a source, but it's something that you're not supposed to do because the understanding is that when a subject sees the photo, they're going to start to say, you know, no, I don't like that. I didn't mean to look like that. Or I didn't, you know, then they start to change the quote that goes with the photo. And so you don't show your, the photos like you don't show an article before they're published. And on two occasions, I've been asked to do that. And one was when I was in the Cornwall Valley where Restrepo took place. And um, we were given access to the Tactical Operations Center. And that is highly uh, classified. There, there's information and drone feeds and heat sensor feeds and things coming into that room that are incredibly sensitive and very highly classified. So G2, which is military intelligence, gave us access to that room with the agreement that they would look at my photos before I sent them to the New York Times because they didn't, they wanted to make sure I wasn't compromising military positions or maps or betraying anything to the enemy. Hmm. So on that occasion, I thought that was fair because it was a room that I never would have had access to otherwise. So, you know, my that was sort of, I talked with my editor and that was the agreement we made. Do you ever, do you ever, um, this, yeah, sorry, go on, yeah. please. No, I was going to say, do you ever feel like you were in too deep? And what I'm, obviously you felt physical danger. I the, always feel like. Yeah, that's, I'm, that's why I'm, I, 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 I said go ahead after I interrupted you because I was like, I know this answer. But I guess I want to look at it a little differently in the sense of, hierarchically, sorry, deep, you know, in terms yeah. of the depth of the infrastructure. I know physical imminent, physical pain, obviously that's its own realm that I can't understand your courage in, under under that. But what I'm saying is, have you ever thought governmentally you were in too deep? Uh, no, no, governmentally, no. I think that I'm, I'm you know, I think I'm, I'm good at sort of, understanding um, the limits or the, the rules put on access. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think, in my opinion, it's always better to see something than nothing at all. And so I think what is difficult, the other occasion that I was going to talk about um, was the subject of a radio lab piece, which I don't know if you heard, it's called Sight Unseen, where I um, was photographing a young man uh, Lance Corporal Taylor, who had stepped on a, a mine or an IED, and he, um, I was working with the medevacs, and we picked him up in southern Afghanistan, brought him back to the field hospital. He had lost eight or nine pints of blood, essentially almost all of his blood, and they tried to save his life for 29 minutes, and he died, and this was all on camera, and of course, the military makes you sign a waiver when you do military embeds that if there is a KIA, someone who is killed in action, um, on camera, then you need to get permission from the next of kin in order to publish those pictures uh, with any identifying marks, so showing the face of the of the deceased or tattoos or anything that might identify him. And so in that, that was a very, very, very difficult story because in the end, um, I, I um, was in touch with uh, Jonathan's father, and um, we went back and forth. And in fact, we're still in touch. Um, and this is years ago. This is seven years ago. And in the end, he decided it would be too difficult for his other uh, children to see to see their brother um, dying. And so they decided against publishing those pictures. So that was their decision. That's a very hard position for a photographer to be in because. I am now a mother and I understand his decision, but I also believe firmly as a journalist that these pictures need to get out. I mean, soldiers are dying in Afghanistan, Iraq, around the world. 
And the reason I think that that uh, more Americans don't care about these wars is because the wars have been completely sanitized, that we don't ever see dead soldiers. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking of another really awful figure of speech. It's funny, when I speak with really smart people like you and who have really been in... In har- I don't feel very smart. No, well, then then just sit there and, and accept that you are to me. You are brilliant. Uh, and, and, and is, is what you is, well, here's the here's the um, is what is what you do, the tip of the spear or the spear? You know, I, I wonder about photography as an invitation is not right, the right word, but, you know, a siren song or a call or a wake up or an alarm clock. But is what you do a prelude or is it the full piece? Because I think sometimes with arresting photos, I, I, I'm going to say something and I don't want you to fight me off. A photo can be too arresting. A photo because of the, there's a, there's another filmmaker. Yeah, well, I don't agree. Well, there's another filmmaker quote. Yeah, I want you to fight me off. There's another filmmaker quote, and it's Truffaut that Francois Truffaut thinks that uh, war films should never have been made; that they're irresponsible because war films romanticize war naturally. Do you think there's a danger in what you do being a device of romance? No, God, no. I mean, that is it. it if it is a device of romance, then I'm really a failure at my job. Mm. Because the mm. last thing I want people to do is feel comfortable when they look at my pictures. I want them to feel incredibly uncomfortable and to feel um, kind of, you know, to, I want the picture to resonate with them. And I want them to, to uh, be furious and to be upset and to be teary eyed and to be moved to sort of action. So, no, I, I think, you know, a picture should be as arresting as it possibly could be. And I think it should stop people on its tracks because those are the pictures that stand the test of time. A couple more beats with Lindsay Adario. Have you ever felt moved or how closely did you, have you ever been to doing moving imagery, whether it's historically or currently? Do you feel there's something that moving images may push your work towards that stills cannot, or do you feel like it's a different church, different, yeah. p- different pew? No, I no. I mean, to be honest with you, if I um, if I had the tools, if I if I knew how to properly do video, I might do more. Um, I just frankly have I haven't learned. And I you know, there have been times in my career where I've walked into a story and I've said, you know, this needs to be shot with a moving image. And and, you know, there was a video I did on maternal mortality um, a woman dying in childbirth in Sierra Leone that I happened to be shooting some video. Of course, I had no idea what I was doing because I'm self-taught as a photographer and I also sort of self-taught as a, as a videographer. So, you know, it was very piecemeal, but there are times where I think the moving image is, is more powerful, frankly, than a still image. And I think, you know, that's, to the discretion of the artists and of the, of the journalists. And, and, and so, you know, stories are different. Some stories are, are more powerful, you know, with still and audio. Some stories are more powerful with moving image. You know, I think it, it really, it depends on, on who's behind the camera and it depends on the story. I just don't have the tools. You know, I haven't learned how to how to shoot video properly. Well, you you are the quintessential autodidact. I mean, I'm, I I feel like you know you're 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 one email away from knowing the tools. I mean, I, I mean, you know, but but it's funny. And, and I I want to ask you another strange question. When I think of great photographers. You know, so often now we're pushing people into, you know, being the full service videographer or predator or whatever they call them these days. Predator meaning producer, editor. Don't get the wrong idea. Um, Mm -hmm. Would you ever be the DP for a film? Not this, not the storyteller as such, the director of photography. Let's let's assume, you know, I could pay for a crash course on how to use the tools. Uh, would you ever shoot someone else's film, or do you feel that you're one, you would be one level removed from your voice, or too far removed from your voice within a story? I don't know because I don't know how much um, freedom the DP has to to insert his or her own voice. I mean. You know, I uh, the the way that I've sort of conducted myself professionally is that I never I, I go with my instincts, and if a project seems interesting to me, and if I think I can learn, if I think I can if I can say something or do something with a project, then I do it. So I never really 
um, say this is something I would never do or this is something I'm not interested in because essentially I'm interested in everything. And it's just a matter of uh, what the, what the guidelines are, what the parameters are, who the you know who the director is, mm. what the storyline is. Mm. So you know, I'm I, it really depends. You know, if it's a story, I think that you know should be told, and if I think I can bring something with my vision, well, then I'll do it. But- and that's sort of the way. I've approached war, ironically, and the way I've approached my entire profession is that if I think that there's something for me to add to a story, if there's a, you know, something for me to tell or a story that's not being told or, you know, then I do it. You know, I don't really think that much. One other meta subject and then a few uh, last goodbyes um the subject of luck and and it's something and i want to i want to look at it in, in one and a half ways with you here's the halfway the halfway is i have a lot of guests on the show and, and musicians and filmmakers and and they'll i'll ask them what separates you from a musician or a filmmaker who hasn't made it and the almost the first word before i finish the sentence is luck and i i don't like mm-hmm. the word because i i'm a teacher i can't teach luck i i respect the word or at least i disrespect i have a healthy disrespect for the word if, if that makes sense mm-hmm. now i've heard mm-hmm. you, i've seen you use the word luck and but when you use it i think of something completely different how do you feel you've been lucky because i think of physical luck i think of other forms of luck but do you feel you've been lucky and i guess professionally lucky physically lucky artistically lucky do you feel like you've been any manner of those lucky states okay well, I think, look, I think um, I've, I'm lucky to be alive. Right. I mean, that's for sure. There's no, you know, I've, I can count I've probably four or five times in my life I was sure I was dead. So there's some reason, and I can only attribute that to luck, um, that I'm still alive. So that's number one. Um, but I think in terms of my career and in terms of having, you know, living out, you know, basically the fact that my life is what I always dreamed it could be in the sense that I'm being paid to travel around the world, meet people, learn, um, you know, explore cultures, explore issues and bring those stories back to the public. That to me is an absolute dream and a privilege on so many levels, but I don't think it's luck. I think I work my ass off. You know, I work very hard. I'm very dedicated. I spend, you know, I spend a lot of time researching, cultivating relationships and trying to do this right. And so I think it's a com- combination of tenacity, ambition, perseverance, dedication, and relentless. You know, I, I basically don't give up. And so I think there's a little luck in there, but a lot of it is, uh, you know, has to do with other things. Well, would you, would you rather sprinkle pixie dust of strength over a young aspiring photographer, a creator, journalist, or the pixie dust of luck? I don't know if strength is the right word. When I think of strength, I think of physical strength. You know what I mean? Mm. I think you have to be resilient. I think you have to, like, face rejection over and over. You have to believe in yourself. You have to be um, passionate and tenacious. Um, I I think that those, I don't know about strength, though. I mean, sure, you have to be physically strong, but that's not, you know, I I don't don't know. I don't think that's so parenthetical. It's fascinating. It's funny. I have a lot of young filmmakers who who don't realize that you have to be, it's a physical profession. (laughs) You're, you know, forget what you've been through with your face down in dirt, physically, you know, tied, restrained. I'm I'm just talking for folks who have stayed on on neutral soil and do these arts. It's it's a physical thing. Yeah. I mean, I carry minimum 50 pounds with me no matter where I go. And you know, I'm, I'll be 44 next week and I go to the gym six days a week. You know, I work out at least an hour a day and I can't not do that because I have to carry equipment. I have to run. I have to be agile. And those are things that, you know, if you want to be a photographer or a photojournalist, you've got to be in okay shape. Uh, one question I'm physically, uh, legally contracted to ask you, and then one final goodbye. Um, are we going to see um, the Lindsay Adario story on the screen? <laughs> um, so I hope so. <laughs> the, the book has been optioned by Warner Brothers, and um, yeah. Jennifer Lawrence is, is um, playing me. And I've, I've heard Gilbert of her. Is, um, 
directed. I've heard of him. Directing. And, um, you know, she's, uh, I've spent a fair amount of time with her in the last, you know, few years. And she's extraordinary. She's an incredible actress, but she's also so much fun and very dedicated and has taken the time to try to get to know me to get this right. Um, so that, I really appreciate that. I think, you know, I hope it's moving forward. There's a script, uh, done. Peter Craig is the writer. Um, and, and that's basically where we're at. There's no, they haven't started shooting. Um, so that's sort of where this, where it's all at. Well, the, the word, the term I was thinking of, and again, it's falls so short, Lindsay, just when I speak to you is development hell, you know, um, you know, you've been in hell. I mean, honestly, isn't it so stupid? And I don't mean to sound like some Western PC guy, but it, you know, the, the real realities that you go through and have been through do make one question poetic license. I wonder what the great poets would have thought with our world now in that sense. Like I'm thinking, oh, so the project's in development hell. No, Lindsay Adario has been in real positions facing hell. Um, You know, I mean, the only hell for me is that basically it's become the one question everyone asks me. It's like, when's the movie coming out? And it's like, wait, I actually have an entire profession that I, you you don't care about what stories I'm working on anymore. I know. I I, I mean, well, you got, at least it was a coda to our conversation, but here's what I do is I, I do something called burying the lead. Here's the lead. The last question. You've been so gracious. The last question for you is, are you an artist? I think I'm a combination of an artist and a journalist. Yeah. I think I'm, I, I try to add a little, yeah, I think I am an artist. But I think I'm, I'm also a journalist. I think I'm not one of the other. <laughs> you know, I believe as much in, in telling the story as I do in making it beautiful and visually compelling. Uh, someone once described art as art are the things that I don't know how to do. Uh, so on that score, everyone should look at your work as art and you as an artist. But I, I don't look at you as an artist in that way. I think your eloquence, your tenacity, all all the the physical, technical, emotional, verbal tools you ply on a daily basis make you an artist of life. Humbly, I say, if I could ever be of any service to your work or getting the word out on anything you need, feel free to call on me. But it's really been humbling to speak with you. And and I didn't mean to sound so glib throughout this, to be honest, because... No, thank you so much. The glibbery hides the profound feelings your work evokes and you evoke and thank you for tolerating the tone and being with us here today it's been a great thrill no thank you so much for having me take yeah care, thanks take, so much take care lindy wherever work takes you be well thank you bye you too bye spielberg should do the Lindsay dario story i was thinking when just now as i asked her that why when was the last time Spielberg did a film with a really incredible female lead? Melinda Dario's story, you know, uh, hopefully coming to a theater and an airplane near you. The uh, the Lindsay, uh, the talk with Lindsay, I mean, it just trips so many fascinating artistic wires. I was thinking more about this, the love conundrum. Uh, not to be confused with The Love Connection, <laughs> hosted by Chuck Woolery. Although The Love Conundrum, I, I would tune in to see, although I see that pretty regularly. But what's my point? point is The Love Conundrum of photography. Photography is such still a democratic tool. It is still used in so many high-low ways, you know, from documenting something internal, like a family get-together, to what Lindsay does, which is journalistic and and policy changing and revolutionary revolution inspiring and and scary to politicians and and that to me i think is the highest compliment we can pay any art when it starts to scare you or anyone especially people in power so i think that discrepancy between the high and the low in photography it allows love in and i also think and that, again, I think all of the measures of antagonism and protagonism of love in general then affect our response to photography and our creation of photography. 
so many people now think they are photographers without caring if they're photographers. You know, so there's that craft, social craft conundrum. It's a sub-conundrum. <laughs> sub-conundrum conundrums. So I, I think photography invites a unique opportunity for love to come in, but I, I do think the creator is the author of, or is the arbiter of love. So what Lindsay goes through in terms of capturing an image, getting to know a subject, deciding what photos to use or to not use, those editorial decisions. Love is, love is a piece of editing. You know, anytime we're deciding something in our life, we're editing and we're choosing. And I think inherent in that is love. Now, again, love to me has been ruined by music <laughs> because love needs bells chiming and, and confetti flying. Love to me can be as baseline as anything. And that doesn't diminish its power. I do get very cynical when people look at the problems of the world and say, love is the answer. I, I don't really know what that means. Love to me should be as basic and essential as cereal or milk, almond milk. Now, I, I really like almond milk and cereal. Love should be as quintessential, and it's not for everyone. I, I'm not saying I'm not trying to sound Pollyanna-ish here. I'm demanding that that this happen. <laughs> I'm talking to the cosmos. I want love to be essential. You know, the the concept of unconditional love is there is there a more uh, stimulating, uh, warming, inspiring concept than the idea of unrequited love unrequited love sorry unconditional love unrequited love is not so warm and fuzzy so love is a baseline love is a baseline for life love is a baseline for art is it for those people who struggle to express love in their lives those people who are also creators i wonder what their response would be to the question of do you think about love when you create do you think about love when you change your creation or reveal your creation or hide your creation. I do think love, but again, I don't think it's the love of 70s AM radio and yacht rock. I think it's it's love as a nece necessary ingredient in the admixture stew of why things are created. So the Godard of it all, the Godard of it all, <laughs> You need to love something to photograph it. I don't think he's talking about falling in love with Anna Karina, although that could have been very well on his mind, and, and they did fall in love dramatically, intensely, and it was torn asunder. So then you have the Truffaut of it all, that war is irresponsible in terms of fiction because it romanticizes love. So yes, we can agree that there are many forms of love. I'm arguing that the creator needs the least uh, emotional form of it, the least passionate love within creation is fantastic, but I don't think it is a barrier. It shouldn't be a barrier of entry. And many creatives may hear this concept and think, I don't need to love because my work, my art is my work, and I don't love my work because I don't need to love my work. So, so many, so many circles that that intersect in terms of love, identity, work, necessity, why we create, having a job, being able to pay our bills. Are we just scratching the surface on a weekly basis? Yes, but scratch we shall because we still have many, many itches. One itch we scratched. <laughs> this is silly. Thank you, Lindsay Adario, for being with us today on the show. Uh, we want to thank her. Her work is incredible. She is incredible. Come on, Spielberg. Get this movie made. Murmurradio.com. At MSF Murmur are the social handles every week. Live. WHUPFM.org. Evergreen. iTunes. Google Play. Stitcher. With love. With unconditional love we do this show i do this show it is perhaps the prototypical labor of love not to give away too much <laughs> see ya